to me, forgiveness is like keys in a jail. It frees you. It frees you, the person who have been wronged, and it frees the person who did the wrong. That's what the Amish did. They, they gave me the gift of freedom. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Betwixt Podcast. I'm Deb Gregory, and I'm holding conversations at the intersection of faith and culture. If you're new to the podcast, our, our themes highlight people, places, or practices in a middle space betwixt and between one thing and another. In this liminal zone, we look for glimpses of transformation and renewal. You can learn more about the show at betwixtpodcast.com. Our topic today is the practice of forgiveness. It's often said, forgive and forget. But what happens when two parties, offender and offended, come together and build a relationship in a space that never forgets? In a few minutes, my guest, Joel Kime, is going to share a story of great pain and tragedy and, and how the practice of forgiveness transformed that tragedy into something that no one quite expected. And we'll see how forgiveness shaped the trajectory of the lives of those who are impacted by that incident. So Joel's an old friend from college. He's the pastor of Faith Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he's ministered within his community for the last 15 years. Hey, Joel. Hey. Joel and I lived in the same small town in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is often described as Amish country. If you're unfamiliar with the Amish, they are Anabaptist Christian communities who try to live simple lives without reliance on modern conveniences or technologies. They dress in plain clothes, they have restrictions on the use of electricity, and they travel by a horse and buggy. They're known for their values of hard work, community life, and humility. And the Amish strive to live lives set apart from the world, and they don't often mix with non-Amish, or English as they call it, outside of business. Although my friend Joel lived in an area with many Amish, he didn't have much interaction with their community until tragedy brought them face to face. So I've invited you to share this conversation with me um, because yeah. I'm really interested in, in this story that you have to share about forgiveness. Yes. It's a real powerful story. I know you've shared it a lot of times um, in the past. Even though I've known you since college, this is kind of the first time that I've sat down with you and, and really heard it the whole way through. So I'm, I'm excited about this. Sure. So go ahead and tell me your story about this car accident. Yeah. So I, much like many teenage drivers, was super excited about getting my driver's license and the freedom of it all. And I just totally gave myself over to that on the road. That meant going as fast as I could, whenever I could, and thinking it was the greatest feeling in the world. Mm. And, and those back roads know. of Lancaster County. Oh, yeah. So yeah, fun to drive. You know. Oh, my goodness. I, like, my parents could go to church on a regular basis. I think it took them like 20 minutes. I one time did it in eight. Just <laughs> ridiculous. Re really ridiculous. But very much the stereotypical teenage driver. The crazy thing is, 
for 11 months after I got my license, nothing happened. I, I drove wild pretty regularly. I never got a speeding ticket, no kind of uh, fender bender, not even the smallest little thing. Hmm. So I think I started to become pretty much like I was the invincible driver. And I, I was the awesome driver and I could do this. And it was actually uh, November 3rd, 1991. That afternoon, I remember it very clearly, it was like a really crisp fall day, beautiful, clear. Right after church, my brother and I and, and some other buddies, we were driving to play football and um, driving my parents' station wagon. And my, my buddy was in the front seat and my brother and his friend were right behind us. But we were on Kissel Hill Road, which is farm country road in Lancaster County, like you said. And we came up over a small rise in the road and out in front of us, maybe a hundred yards or so, I saw an Amish buggy. And in Lancaster, that is a common sight. No surprise at all. We see them all the time. We have a standard practice that we just drive right around them because they're going so slow. We pretty much an accepted thing. So thinking I was cooler than cool, Mr. Super Driver, I got out into the left lane and I hit the gas and I was like, we're going to go blowing by these guys. I, I mean, I said that out loud to my buddy. And just as we got to the point of passing them, they turned out in front of me. It was actually an intersection and they were trying to make a left-hand turn right in front of me. And I think I was going so fast and I had not paid attention to turn signals that there was nothing I could do except slam on the brakes and literally plow right through them. The images are pretty much etched in my mind of this buggy smashing into the, the windshield of the car, the pop of the glass as it shattered and this horse and buggy flying over top of my car. My foot was on the brake and we skidded to a stop in the field right next to the road. It was a crazy, awful, horrible moment. My buddy in the front seat had never gotten his seatbelt on. All he did was hang on to the seatbelt for dear life. When I hit the brakes, it swung him and he smashed into the windshield, but he was okay, thankfully. My brother and his friend in the back seat were okay. And all I had was a little cut on my hand. There was like this trickle of, of blood going down my hand. I could not open my door. It was jammed. As I'm trying to open the door, this Amishman comes running up to us. Does anybody know CPR? Does anybody know CPR? I was like the oldest in our car. I was 17. I mean, we had no clue what to do. Hmm. Um, but we got out of the car and we went down to where the Amishman was and he was holding a lady from behind and she was so, so messed up. I, I'm not even going to try and describe it. She was just really, really bad shape. It was awful. Hmm. You can still see it in your mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. Um, it, you did, it was just bad. I mean, yeah. for whatever reason, she took the full force of the accident and he did not. I, I don't know how that happened or why. We just didn't know what to do. I, I was like basically like holding on to my friend. I'm in a frantic panic. What do we do? What do we do? And I sent my brother to run across the field to the nearest farm, 
hoping that they might be able to find a telephone. I mean, we're 91. Nobody had cell phones. Mm-hmm. And the Amish don't usually have phones. No. It seemed like an eternity as we're just standing there waiting, feeling helpless, having no idea what to do, and yet knowing I was responsible for all this. And finally, an ambulance came. And I remember that moment, just this overwhelming sense of relief, like, okay, finally someone that can do something about this. Uh, they took her away to the hospital, and then the police officer started questioning me about what had happened. I told him exactly what happened, including that I was probably going 75 miles an hour, uh, which is way more than that speed limit there. Mm-hmm. And a family friend happened by, and he was able to take my brother home to tell my parents, and then my dad came. The officer put me and my dad in the back of his squad car, and gave us a chance to talk it over. You know, it was awful. It was just awful. I'll never forget when my dad said, he's like, this is bad. Your mom and I aren't going to make it worse for you. That was probably the first indication of forgiveness in the story. Because it was bad, just horribly bad. And um, so we then gave the statement to the officer. He said that he would be in touch. And I just remember going home and going into the living room and just kind of crashing. 17-year-old, tough guy, cool kid, crashing into my mom's arms and just weeping. Yeah, broken, scared, nervous. Um, just Yeah, it was, it was horrible. Mm. That day, church friends came over, school friends came over. It was just awesome to have the support uh, of that many people. Hmm. That's interesting. They they heard about this and they, they came to check on you. Yeah. And, and my school friends and my church friends were two totally different groups of people, but they came together that night in support. And that was just so awesome. Then uh, the policeman called back. He was at the hospital and he said, you need to know that she was on life support and the Amish do not believe in that, and so they let her go. I was just crushed in the the emotion of all that. He then went on to tell us some more details that made it even worse. At the scene, I thought that this man was holding an older woman, probably his mom or something like that. Well, he was 21 and she was 19. It was his wife and they had just been married like three days before and they were on their honeymoon. And that, that just leveled me. Um, wow. I, I, I don't even, I, I still to this day, I don't even know what to do with that. Knowing the incredible pain, it's horrible. So the officer said that he would continue to be in touch as things proceeded. I was going to be charged, and I was charged with vehicular homicide. The next day, my parents let me stay home from school. I I remember hanging out with a friend just to kind of get away from it all. And, And as I was over at his house, my parents called me and said, through the grapevine, we found out where the viewing is going to be. And we're going, and you're coming with us. 
in my head, I'm like, oh my goodness, no, 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 no. And yet I also knew I have no right to say anything about this. Totally don't want to do it, scared. But what I had just committed was so horrible. I wanted to do whatever was necessary to to deal with it the right way. Frankly, it was one of my biggest fears these last few years as my boys got their driver's license, thinking to myself, oh man, I would never want to have to walk through what my parents did. I mean, imagine being faced with what they were faced with. Hmm. And yet they did, they did everything right. Hmm. Um, it's, um, hmm. What do you think they were thinking by even going to the viewing? I mean, I don't know that many people would even consider that as being an option. Uh, I'm pretty sure it, it was a desire to begin the process of making right that which was so wrong. Hmm. They knew their role in it and they were going to face head on whatever that meant and they were going to walk with me through it wow yeah so that night we went so we showed up at the place and actually found out that we were given the wrong location we were given the location of the husband's parents this is so crazy but his father was there so this would be the father-in-law of the girl who died and he needed a ride to the viewing. Oh, my goodness. And so my parents were like, all right, we'll give you a ride. And so here we are the very next day taking the father-in-law to his daughter-in-law's viewing when I was the one who did it. It was crazy. I remember being in the van with him and my parents talking to him and whether it was his wife, or maybe he he as well, was the first person to share the words of forgiveness and saying, we forgive you. We found out where the real location was, and we headed over there. It's about, you know, 10, 15 minute drive. And um, when we showed up, there were Amish buggies everywhere. This was in November, which is Amish wedding season. And so to have a newlywed couple face this tragedy was massive in their culture because all their friends and family had just been together the previous Thursday celebrating their wedding. So the couple's name is Aaron and Sarah, the married couple, and Sarah passed away. Sarah's parents um, are Melvin and Barbara. Oh, I was so scared. I, I just had these visions in my head of, Amish people pouring out of the house with shotguns and stuff. And I mean, that's totally not them. They're pacifists, but oh my, I, I, there was literal pain shooting through my gut. And we go in the house and they met us at the door. And before I could even hardly get a word out, they wrapped me in their arms and they said, we forgive you. We know it was God's time for her to die. We forgive you. And I just couldn't believe it. And yet they were genuine. And they kept talking and saying things like, 
we want to have you and your family over for dinner. Like right there at that moment, they said that. And I, it was just a crazy almost and astoundingly awesome and joyful and mm. bizarre and, and yet real. And so then eventually they led me by myself into like a side room where there was Sarah in a wooden coffin with Aaron standing next to her. Then I saw her as she was, a 19-year-old and beautiful, still with the many marks of the accident on her. And there was Aaron, and I just walked up to him and said, what can I ever do to say I'm sorry? And he too wrapped his arms around me and said, I forgive you. Ah. Uh, wow. I, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. It sounds really, really personal. Yeah, yeah. It was face to face. It was a 21-year-old man standing next to his newlywed 19-year-old bride as she is in her coffin in front of the 17-year-old irresponsible kid that killed her. And him saying, I forgive you. It's it's kind of mind-blowing. What did and, that do to you? I mean, how, how did you receive that? I mean, just hearing this, I feel like it's just piercing into me. I was absolutely hungry for that forgiveness. Again, I probably could not have articulated all of that. It was so emotional. I knew I had committed this awful, awful thing. You, you, you want forgiveness in that moment so badly because you know that you can't change the circumstances hmm. and they gave that forgiveness and they gave it quickly and so liberally hmm. there there was no doubt about it that a sense of peace or joy or maybe freedom is even the better word very quickly came into my life i'll never forget it was about a week later i got together with my youth pastor there burger king and he's like so how are you doing and I could honestly answer him, I'm okay. I mean, I, there was more to come in this story as far as the crime and the consequences and, and so on. But in, in all the ways that mattered, their forgiveness had changed what had been this horribly desperate, terrible situation and turned it into something that could have hope. This Amish family wasn't done because they did have us over for dinner. It was like only three weeks later. We were over at their house, Aaron and a bunch of Sarah's siblings, and they made this huge meal. And never once in that meal did they try and make us feel bad or make me feel bad. The crazy thing was it was more like a get-to-know-you session. Yeah, I mean, they wanted to know about our lifestyle, and we started asking questions about their lifestyle. And um, I hadn't had any friends in the Amish community before this. And so for them, forgiveness meant making a relationship out of one that was non-existent. So tragedy led to friendship with the perpetrator of the tragedy. I, I, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Was that their way of honoring Sarah in some way? I have no idea. Hmm. I suspect it was more just their way of understanding the biblical teaching of forgiveness. You know, you think about when Jesus said, 
forgive that person 70 times seven. That could be a situation where a person sins against you multiple times. But in the Amish case, I think it was more that forgiveness meant creating a relationship where one didn't exist before. Because, you know, maybe the feelings of pain keep coming up so that within you, you need to forgive over and over again. Mm. And for them, I think that meant building a relationship. And then my parents had them over for dinner. That's a detail I didn't share. So when my parents had the Amish family over for dinner, I think this was within the first year. We were finished eating dinner and we went down into my parents' basement or parents' one room. We had a ping pong table. And Aaron, he wanted to play me in ping pong, <laughs> which is so bizarre. <laughs> I mean... In, in that act, Aaron is purposely removing the shame, removing the guilt, removing the all the pain and saying, let's press on into something that friends will do because that's what we should be. And that's what forgiveness does. And so we played ping pong. And it was so crazy because I was way better than him. And I then started beating him in ping pong. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Should I just let him win? Like, I, I, it was, <laughs> I felt weird beating him. Like, this is not right. And I mean, can you imagine? You're the guy that created this horrible accident that led to my wife's death like a year ago or less. And now you're beating me in ping pong. Like, it, it just seemed really bizarre. And yet he didn't convey any of that. He only conveyed that this is a fun thing that friends do. And I think we played like 11 games in a row and I beat him every single time. <laughs> it was like normal. So we started a tradition that we have kept every year, and that is to go visit them every year around the time of the accident. Wow. Let's see. This is year 26. Uh, only once or twice have we missed out. I, you might even remember since you were there uh, at Michelle and, and my wedding. Mm -hmm. We invite the Amish people to come, and they did. You know, think about that. That's crazy. I mean, who ruins one person's wedding? And then it's only like four years later, we invited them to ours. It almost seems like a crazy slap in the face. But that's how the relationship had grown to that point, where we felt that we could truly invite them. And they came and they brought gifts. And then a couple of years later, when we went to Jamaica, they supported us financially as missionaries. There was even a time a few years ago, I'd say six, seven years ago, where the husband, Aaron, oh, no, I have to say this too. This is, this is crazy. So Aaron, a couple years after the accident, started dating Sarah's younger sister and they got married. They've been married ever since and have a whole slew of kids. And guess what? Aaron became a pastor in the Amish church. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just nuts. This story. So a couple years ago, I got a phone call out of the blue from Aaron, the husband. We hadn't really stayed in touch a whole lot. Mostly when we go to visit the family, it's not Aaron. It's Melvin and Barbara, which is Sarah's parent. Okay. So I hadn't seen Aaron in years. And he called me out of the blue and said, hey, I have heard of a young man who has gone through a situation very similar to ours. And he crashed into an Amish buggy. And I heard he's not doing well. And I wondered if maybe you and I would go down there together and visit him. Can you imagine that? Wow. Uh, I, yeah, I just, 
that he thought of that. Just this incredible indication of redemption and and grace and forgiveness. And now I wish I could say it worked out. It didn't actually work out for us to go down and do that. But just that he thought about it and wanted to pursue that is just awesome. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's my story. <laughs> yeah, you talked about it being everything kind of aligned perfectly, and it happened really extraordinarily well. And it almost seems as though it was easy for the Amish to forgive. But what's your sense? What do you think was the struggle that they felt? Do you ever have any indication of any kind of tension that they felt in that? Yeah, four or five years ago, during one of our visits, they opened up and started talking about it. And they had never done that before. And I think they so deeply wanted to to avoid any sense of condemnation. But I think enough time had gone by, you know, enough relationship had been built that my mom tends to be the one that drives a lot of these conversations. She might have even asked them, like, tell us what it was like. And it was emotional. Um, I remember sitting there at that time, just listening to them. I, I couldn't even hardly speak just because, you know, even though 20 some years had gone by, hearing them talk about it, it was hard, painful. Sarah was quite an amazing individual. And at, even at only 19, she was uh, known to be a, um, a, a singer, songwriter in the Amish community. I don't exactly know what that means in their context. That makes me think of you a little bit, Deb. Uh, you know, that she was known for that and just such a vibrant person. So wonderful. I said she was beautiful and, and it was hard, really hard for them and painful. And yet they knew. And I do think some of it is their, their culture, their community, but it, a lot of it is just their way of applying the teaching on Jesus teaching on forgiveness. They knew that forgiveness was necessary. And now, you know, you hear the nickel mine story and the, and the unbelievable forgiveness that the Amish shared there. And I, I know it's a part of their culture, but that doesn't make it easy or perfunctory or something like that. Mm -hmm. it, I have never gotten the sense that they are just bending over to the whims of determinism. I, I think they're, they have been emotional with us. They have... They have expressed how hard it was. They made the choice to do it. It wasn't easy, but it was a choice. It was a discipline of forgiveness. There's a quote by, I think she's a Russian Orthodox woman. The idea is that life comes out of the compost heap. And she says, dark mm -hmm. times condition us for God. They invite us to a transformed identity through a deeper faith, hope, and love. Did you find that to be true in any way? Yeah, it gets me thinking about the concept of liminal space. A couple of things I remember distinctly. One was that night of the accident. It was very hard to sleep. And I remember staying up late by myself in my bed and just reaching out to the Lord in prayer. I remember through the walls, I could hear my parents talking like, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., just reaching out to the Lord and that was definitely a formative time. I wish I could say that this experience transformed me into like this super Christian or so. I, I don't know. It, you know, it didn't in, in that sense. 
I'll never forget my my soccer coach coming to the door a few days, I think, after the accident. He just said the phrase, you will learn compassion from this. And that stuck with me. It was such a, almost like an odd thing to say. Hmm. Um, I would never have guessed him to be a compassionate kind of person based on his uh, approach to coaching, at least Mike. <laughs> but what he said was so true. I think that was one thing that I can say there was this transformation that took place inside of me where it hasn't been hard to feel compassion or, or want to be forgiving. Again, I'm not tooting my own horn there. I didn't try that or intend that. It, I think it came out of the, of the situation of being in a place where I needed forgiveness so badly. There was a transformation that happened. I think there's also a sense in which the liminal space with this situation is ongoing in some way. Okay. Um, like I said, I, I have to drive by that site of the accident on a fairly regular basis. Every time I think about it. It's 26 years ago. It'll be next week or right around this time of year when it happened. And so many times I think, oh, it's starting to fade away now. It's been so long. And then something happens, um, you know, like yourself contacting me about it or someone inquires about it out of the blue. And it forces me back into that moment of, of wrestling with it. Yeah. It sounds like it continues to shape that it wasn't just like a one once and done shaping, but it's a, a space yeah. where you have to visit again and again. And I think that's the whole idea of maybe what the Amish are saying is that it continues to be a process of, of forgiveness 70 times 7. Yeah, I think so. I think there are certain wrongs that are committed against us that even though we forgive them the first time, that doesn't mean that the feelings and the pain and the just the sheer weight of it all goes away for good. It might come back, and it might come back a lot of times, and it might need to be forgiven all over again in a new and different way. And I do think 70 times seven is a bit, a bit about that as well. Mm. I thought that I always had kind of like on my hand and the scar that's there. I don't ever want it to go away in the sense that if God can use this story to help people, particularly from the side where there may be people who need to forgive, but are just holding out, my encouragement would be to take Take that risk of forgiveness. And I know that there are certain situations that are so much more messy. Mine was pretty clean in a way. I used to say a lot, forgive to the point where you build a relationship out of one that wasn't there before, because that's what happened to me. Hmm. But in more recent years, I've realized that might not be the best idea for everybody. A lot of it has to do with the approach or the behavior of the person that needs to be forgiven. Because I would never want someone to equate forgiveness with excusing bad behavior, especially in an abusive situation. Mm. Um, forgiveness is one thing. It doesn't mean that you are to then allow yourself to endure abuse again. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's really helpful because there's something about um, your story that is universal in this understanding of forgiveness, but yet every story is different. Yeah. I've, he I've heard it said that there's something about bringing together 
two opposites or two things that are in offense. And so in that reconciling of offender and offended, that transformational space um, mm-hmm. is, is actually a really sacred space. Um, mm. Something unique happens there. Something A healing can happen there that otherwise wouldn't mm. be able to happen. For me, that was 100% true. When they gave me those hugs and those words of forgiveness and then invited my family over for dinner, it frees you. Emotional freedom, psychological, spiritual, and physical too. Freedom. They even wrote letters to the judge asking me to be freed from all charges. Now that couldn't happen. That You, you see the extent to which they went. If I'm given an opportunity to share the story, I want to I want to trumpet the kind of forgiveness that was given to me. It's the, it's the kind of forgiveness that God gives to us. And that is a beautiful thing. Mm. It is a beautiful thing. In many ways, Joel's story is one of beauty from ashes. It stirs hope for those who are longing to be forgiven, but also the pang of devastation for those who have experienced ashes to ashes. So how is it that Joel's story went so well? And what's behind the Amish discipline of forgiveness? Well, since my stepfather grew up Amish, I asked him about Joel's story. He remembered when the accident happened and and how it impacted the Amish community, but he made it clear that forgiveness for the Amish is not as simple as people think. Brokenness, abuse, and grievances happen in their community just as they do with all humans. And just like other Christians, they ground the practice of forgiveness in the Bible. They don't have a different handbook on forgiveness. But perhaps what makes the Amish unique is that their response to tragedy is not the response of an individual. It's a community response, and the community makes a way for offender and offended to humbly enter a space together where everything is turned on its head. Anthropologist Edith Turner wrote about community formed in this liminal space in her book, Communitas, The Anthropology of Collective Joy. She describes these communal relationships as full of inversions, like joy and grief, bonding and brokenness, forgiving the unforgivable. When facing tragedy as a collective, she said, it can produce the opposite of stress, a steady cheerfulness and even happiness, sometimes called the human spirit in adversity. As I listened to Joel's story, I was struck by the joy and steadiness that marked the relationship between his family and the Stoltzfus family. It wasn't just individuals coming together, it was communities forming communitas. Through building relationship in the face of adversity, that exchange of stories, shared meals, ping pong tournament shutouts, a sense of community, or rather communitas, emerged in a most unexpected way. Two communities, Amish and English, bonding in a normally forbidden way, together accepting pain, experiencing joy, and birthing the vitality of communitas in the wake of tragedy. This vitality Edith Turner called a miracle. 
It's like finding the door to the world of another person and to a deeper understanding of ourselves. And so my hope is that Joel's story might inspire a miracle of your own. for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missyoualliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. Space